It's important to me to tell what happened. I don't know how people are going to take this. I don't know what they're going to think after all these months and years why I've come forward. A woman struggled about whether to come forward about a traumatic event in her past. Would anybody believe her if she did? And why had she waited so long to tell her story? She agonized, and when she finally does talk, she makes explosive allegations about a sexual assault 20 years earlier. The man that she says assaulted her? The sitting president of the United States, Bill Clinton. The woman, of course, was Juanita Broderick, and her story about being raped by Bill Clinton seems eerily familiar amid the swirl of allegations now facing President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. How did the media handle Broderick's story? How did journalists assess her credibility? And how was her story received by the public and by political partisans on both sides when it finally came out? We'll discuss those issues and talk to a former Washington Post reporter who first investigated Broderick's account on today's Buried Treasure. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Danny, I've been uh, thinking a lot about the Broderick story over the last couple of weeks as the uh, as the women come forward making the allegations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh and uh, watch the way the media has reported on them. Um, And it's really um, uh, eerie in a way uh, that it echoes so much of the uh, controversy that surrounded the publication and airing of Juanita Broderick's account. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I actually went back and I read... uh uh, some of the uh, uh, journalism from the time, both television and newspapers, um, and um, there really are all sorts of parallels. Uh, you know, the, the main one, it seems to me, um, is that uh, even after all of these years, after, uh, you know, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, uh, when um, uh, sexual harassment, um, you know, became something that was more kind of socially acceptable to talk about, um, even after all that has passed, it is still the case uh, that it is extremely difficult uh, for women uh, to come forward and tell these stories. And when you go back and you look at the Juanita Broderick story, uh, you know, whether that happened or not, um, and, you know, there are people who still disagree, um, uh, hearing her talk about um, why it took her so long to come forward um, all of the things that she had to to grapple with, um, that people wouldn't believe her, that she was fearful, uh, that she didn't want to relive it. Um, those are the same kinds of um, uh, issues uh, that uh, the 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 women who have now accused um, Brett Kavanaugh um, have, have had to deal with. Um, and, um, you know, you, you would think that by now maybe it would be easier uh, to come forward. Um, and in a sense, it might be in this kind of Me Too uh, moment, but it is still extremely difficult. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I should point out and, and we'll go over just what Juanita Broderick's specific story was. But it's worth mentioning that um, 
she wasn't making allegations about an event that took place while Clinton was in high school or college. Uh, at the time of the alleged assault, uh, assault, Bill Clinton was 31 years old. He was the Arkansas Attorney General and he was running for governor. And uh, Broderick had a number of corroborators who could say she told them what happened in real time shortly after it occurred. And of course, that was always the, the, the yardstick that I used when I was investigating the Paula Jones sexual harassment claims. Uh, and it's one that people, reporters, look for uh, to assess uh, whether to believe an account uh, from, uh, uh, whether to believe a he said, she said count where there's no video, there's no photographs, um, uh, there's no definitive proof one way or the other, but when you tell somebody in real time, uh, that's significant. I, um, I, you're absolutely right, uh, and I think it brings up uh, one I think contrast uh, between then and now, and it has to do with journalism and with um, our standards uh, for uh, publishing or airing these kinds of stories back then and now. And I wonder, maybe this is something we can get into, uh, is whether those standards have lowered a little bit. Uh, When you go back and you look at uh, the Washington Post story at the time and the NBC uh, piece at the time, was pretty rigorous. Uh, you know, they were almost bending over backwards uh, to show every possible uh, gap in the story, or you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, doubts or credibility issues. Um, and um, uh, I, I think that um, there's a lot of you know really good journalism happening right now in this area, uh, but um, I, I think the standards have lowered maybe a little bit. Interesting, because uh, precisely that charge that standards had uh, lowered uh, was leveled against uh, the reporters who um, uh, who disclosed Juanita Broderick's story. At the so, time, yeah. I, and we're going to have one of those reporters on with us to talk about it, Lois Romano, uh, who was a reporter for the Washington Post for many years, uh, a veteran, and she her byline was on the front page Washington Post story. Uh, that ran uh, back in 1999. But uh, before we bring Lois in, I just want to sort of remind people of the essence of, uh, of Juanita Broderick's story and also play a couple of clips from uh, the interview that Lisa Myers of NBC News did with Juanita Broderick that aired on Dateline on national TV. Uh, and I should point out that that came, as did the Washington Post story, after the Clinton impeachment trial was over in the Senate and he had been acquitted uh, when it could no longer have the influence that I think many people hoped it would. Um, so just the basics. Juanita Broderick was a nursing home operator in, in, in Arkansas. Uh, she uh, had met Bill Clinton in April of 1978 when he was uh, running for governor. He was the attorney general, as I mentioned before. She expressed interest in, uh, in volunteering for his campaign. Clinton invited her to give him a call when she was next in Little Rock. She did on April 25th. Uh, while she was there for a nursing home convention. Uh, Clinton uh, invites himself up to her 
uh, hotel room for a cup of coffee, uh, says he didn't want reporters would be mulling, milling about downstairs, so he wanted to talk to her privately. Uh, she invited him on up, uh, and then she says uh, he began to make some sexual advances to her, and he kept pressing her for, uh, in, in the course of those sexual advances, we have uh, a couple of clips I want to play uh, where you can hear Juanita Broderick tell the really key parts of her story about what came next. Then he tries to kiss me again. And the second time he tries to kiss me, he starts biting on my lip. <laughs> Just a minute. He starts to... Uh, bite on my top lip and I try to pull away from him and then he forces me down on the bed and I just was very frightened and I tried to get away from him and I told him no and I didn't want this to happen but he wouldn't listen to me did you resist? Did you tell him to stop? Yes, I told him, please don't. He was such a different person at that moment. He was just a, a vicious, awful person. Um, pretty powerful stuff. And um, uh, you, can, you can hear uh, the pain uh, that Juanita Broderick is experiencing as she's relaying the story. Uh, and of course, for those who watched it, you could, you could it, it's in many ways even more uh, gripping. Uh, and then, uh, you know, probably the part that um, really grabbed people the most uh, came as Clinton was leaving the room. She says that Clinton had been biting on her lip. She, her lip became swollen. Uh, uh, she was bruised. And uh, she relates uh, the last words that she heard from Bill Clinton before he left the room. When everything was over with, and he got up and straightened himself, and I was crying at the moment, and uh, he walks to the door and calmly puts on his sunglasses. And his, before he goes out the door, he says, you better get some ice on that. And then he turned and went out the door. On your lip? Yeah. Um, that was uh, one of the more memorable moments of uh, Juanita Broderick's account. Yeah, and it, of course, it, it, it's hard to watch. Go. I mean, it's hard to watch. It's hard to listen to. And of course, it does, you know, bring up a point that I think uh, uh, maybe we'll get into, which is that uh, uh, these um, stories, these cases become, you know, kind of partisan uh, footballs. And uh, it is interesting to me uh, that, uh, Juanita Broderick is has not really been part of this conversation um, that we're having um, uh, about Brett Kavanaugh, um, um, and uh, uh, this was something that Republicans and conservatives flogged over and over again, um, and uh, for the most part, uh, not an example uh, that liberals have turned to uh, all that often, um, and uh, it's just another measure of. Um, how, um, you know, uh, how partisan uh, everything has become. And uh, sometimes we lose uh, sight of the human story 
um, uh, in in in, uh, in in these in this moment. Um, I um, I wanted to talk uh, to uh, my old colleague and friend Lois Romano about this because Lois uh, spent a lot of time with Juanita Broderick, um, uh, interviewing her, trying to assess her credibility, trying to uh, report out the story, uh, and uh, I believe we have Lois on the line. Hey, Lois, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, thanks for having me. So we just uh, reviewed the essence of the uh, Juanita Broderick story, and we played a couple of clips from Lisa Meyer's uh, interview with her that ran on NBC Dateline. But you were mm-hmm. digging into the Juanita Broderick story uh, from the beginning for some time. You interviewed her many times. Tell us a little about how you found her in the first place and what your experience was reporting out that story. So her story had been around for a number of years in Arkansas. She had confided it to, well, she had confided it to friends contemporaneously. And she, she had also told a couple of uh, Clinton haters. If you recall, you know, Clinton, Clinton, although he had been elected multiple times in Arkansas, he was a, he was a pretty controversial character. And he had a group of, of what we used to call the haters. Um, and it was just everybody who did not like Bill Clinton. So this got around in those circles. And when he was being investigated for, you know, the impeachment issues and Paul Jones, everybody became re-riveted on this. Um, and at the time, I was actually living in Oklahoma. So I drove to her home um, and knocked on her door, and she came out. And she was in the process of talking, or she had already finished talking to NBC. And there was a serious question about whether NBC was going to air this. It was very controversial. So she basically, on her front porch, um, confirmed that it had happened, or at least allegedly happened, told me the quick outline of it, and then, um, you know, said that she just wasn't ready. She had talked to Lisa Meyer. She didn't know what was happening, um, but she just wanted to hold off. So over the course of at least six months, and, and this is not unusual, by the way, with these these stories, because the women who have been victimized, um, it takes them time to come forward and to, and to have a comfort level talking about it. So over the course of the ensuing six months, I would just check in with her. Um, and every time I checked in with her, we would have more of a conversation. And it was all off the record, but in the end it was on the record because she allowed it to be. So I just collected string for, I don't know, eight months. So- eight months. So this is right all during the whole Clinton impeachment process over Monica Lewinsky, you were talking to Juanita Broderick and heard all this. And let me just ask you, what was your sense of her uh, when you heard her account? I thought she was very credible. And the reason is she examined her own credibility. And what she said was, well, first of all, no one came forward in 1979, and he was a powerful figure at that point in Arkansas. But in addition to that, she felt like she was at fault, which is not unusual, but she also felt vulnerable because she had let him come up to her hotel room, um, never expecting this to happen. But she was also having an affair with her now husband. 
so she was married, having an affair, and um, she was worried that if this came out, she would be eviscerated. So, Lois, one of the complications uh, with her story um, was that she had, um, I think, uh, once and maybe twice under oath, uh, denied uh, that the incident had happened at all in the in the uh, Paula Jones litigation. Um, how much of a, of a how much did that factor in uh, to your thinking about whether this was a story that you could do? Um, how obviously she was. I guess, persuasive in the end um, about uh, why she did that. But talk about that for a little bit. You know, Dan, I, I, don't, I don't think that factored in in a huge way because um, the feeling was that she seemed extremely credible. She had contemporaneously told a number of people who had great detail. And that part of the story that she had signed the affidavit my recollection is it's not that we didn't consider it, but I think the calculation was um, she was terrified. I don't think the Clinton people put pressure on her. I think she put pressure on herself and didn't want she wanted everyone to leave her alone. And so she agreed to do this to sign this affidavit just so it would go away. Now, in a court of law, of course, that would have been enormously damaging for her. Um, but in a narrative, not just a media narrative, but an investigative narrative, it became less so um, because of the people she had told. One of, there was one woman who was with her, uh, Norma Rogers, and I actually went to her house, too, and, um, at 10 o'clock one night and knocked on the door. And I said, look, I, see, I went to see uh, Juanita. She gave me your name. I'm really sorry to bother you can you confirm this? And she said, off the record, yes. I walked into the hotel room a few minutes later. Her lip was all swollen and bloody. She told me what had happened. She was horrified. Um, and those things become very credible when you're listening to these stories. The uh, Now, of course, what finally prompted her to come forward uh, uh, is she got approached by Ken Starr's uh, investigators and prosecutors. Uh, and uh they were looking into whether Clinton people had pressured her to remain silent. And she had already, of course, denied, filed the, uh, uh, signed the affidavit denying that this had taken place in the Paula Jones harassment suit. But then when it's the FBI and it's uh, federal prosecutors and they gave her immunity for uh, perjury uh, for having filed the false affidavit, and then she tells her story. Uh, you know what's interesting is the Clinton, the Star people could never show that Clinton, as you say, had pressured her to remain silent, uh, and so therefore they never used it as part of the impeachment case against uh, against Clinton. Uh, which was about obstruction of justice in the uh, in the in the Paula Jones harassment suit, um, which is you know a, a lot of people thought though that if this story had come out, uh, it would have made a big impact uh, in the in the debate over and controversy. I, I think Clinton. it would have early on. And what's interesting about what you just articulated is that. Um, I don't believe that they put pressure on her. And not only did they not likely put pressure on her, she became offended 
that people thought they put pressure on her and that she was caving to them. And that, in fact, worked against the Clinton people because, you know, part of the part of her narrative was that it was getting, you know, people were criticizing her and saying they bought her off. You know, she caved under their pressure and that had not happened. Um, and then she also said what so many of these women say, which is that the, if the story was out there and it was, and, and it was, people were getting very close to reporting it. She wanted to be the one to share the story. Now there's an interesting, um, take on the whole media piece of it. Um, NBC never, it took, never was going to run it. I mean, they sat on it for months and months and then, a Wall Street Journal editorial writer, Dorothy Rabinowitz, got onto it, very conservative. She got on a plane and went to Van Buren, Arkansas, and spoke with her, and then did a very long, poignant column on it for the Wall Street Journal before any any news people did. And that's what prompted us to, to – we had it all. I mean, we just were sitting there staring at it, wondering what to do and if we should write it. And the second Dorothy Rabinowitz – you know, put it in the mainstream media, we, we thought, okay, we might as well go with it and just tell it as narrative. And then a couple of weeks after that is when NBC aired it. You know, uh, Lois, that's fascinating because I was going to ask you um, to talk about how the piece was received uh, when you first, when the Post first published it, because my recollection was that in kind of elite liberal media circles, um, People really didn't want to hear that much about this. We, you know, Clinton and some would say Starr uh, put us through this drama, this kind of national soap opera. He'd already been um, impeached and acquitted. And people just kind of didn't have the stomach uh, to go through it. There may have been other factors as well why people didn't want to hear this story. But how how was it received and what was it like to be the reporter uh, who first really told this story um, in you know in a, in, a, in a national newspaper in the news pages of a national newspaper. You know I don't remember it being particularly negative. Now keep in mind this is way before Twitter and Facebook, so I I do you know I'm sure we got some letters to the editor, but you know those were a very distant thing that we would get you know somebody on a piece of paper. So I don't recall um, any I recall I recall pushback on that day. A lot of Democrats uh, calling me and Peter Baker, you know, saying this is just trash. Why are you doing this? That kind of thing. Right. So uh, actually, uh, yeah, yeah, Lois, I was going to say, actually, you did get some flack because I looked uh, up and uh, the the (laughs) ombudsman, uh, the ombudsman, the Washington Post at the time uh, wrote Mm -hmm. a story, wrote a column saying uh, this is a story that should never have seen the light of day. the, there was an Outlook piece by uh, Tom Rosenstiel and uh, and uh, Tom, uh, uh, and Bill Kovich uh, uh, criticizing the piece, saying we've moved from uh, journalism of, uh, of of corroboration and verification to journalism of assertion, um, criticizing the uh, the paper for running the piece, and um, uh, and of course, as you mentioned, the uh, the Clinton folks were quite vociferous. Uh, in their attacks on the uh, on the piece, uh, including uh, uh, our old uh, 
our old uh, pal and uh, uh, two-time Skullduggery guest, Lanny Davis, Davis. was out there. Uh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I do Lanny. remember Lanny being out there. Now, I, I have to be really honest with you. I'm sure at the time the ombudsman and the uh, op-ed piece, um, you know, were, were you know, harmful, or, I, or at least I had a reaction to them, but I don't remember them right now. Um, but I'm not surprised by it at all. Um, you know, well, things have changed a little well, bit yeah, here. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. What differences do you see uh, between uh, the way uh, people reacted uh, to the Juanita Broderick story um, and the way uh, people in this country are reacting to these latest uh, accusations against uh, against Brett Kavanaugh and the women who are making them? Oh, I, I think it's night and day. I mean, and I mean, not to be a broken record on the Me Too movement, but it, it did make it okay for everybody to come out and and to defend, defend these women. And as you you, you know, were saying earlier, Dan, it was just unsavory back then. I mean, people were grossed out by all these stories. They didn't want to hear about the blue dress and you know the cigars. It was like ew. Yeah. Um, and I. You know, you know, it was really interesting back then. The more, the more this stuff came out, the more Hillary Clinton's numbers went up. You know, she, she her numbers were always kind of hovering in the middle there, and they would like spike up to seventy every time more bad stuff came out about him because people didn't like it and they felt bad. Um, but this Me Too movement has allowed, um, you know, everybody to, co- I mean, a lot of women to come forward and men. And I think what you're seeing also just in the last two weeks about why I didn't come forward is just amazing. You know, after the president tweeted she would have come forward. I mean, what you're seeing right now is people just um, flooding the zones about why they didn't come forward. And remember, Juanita didn't come forward for 20 years, 20 years. It was like that happened in 78, and she didn't speak about it till 79. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting about all these cases that politicians and high-profile men need to be aware of, including Brett Kavanaugh, the women don't then go back to their normal lives and never to be heard from again. Um, as we've seen with Juanita, I mean, she's been around the public dialogue now for another 20 years, showing up at his debate. All of these, well, with, with a few exceptions, most of these women stay in the forefront. Monica Lewinsky dropped out for a while. Now she's back with a fervor. So I, you know, if Mr. Kavanaugh, is confirmed, I don't know that he can look forward to putting this all behind him. Right, because the society uh, we, has evolved and uh, and women who've been through these kinds of experiences have platforms, they've got a forum, it's more socially acceptable to talk about, and they are political in, in ways that they weren't before. Right, right. Well, and, and mass communication has helped that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so just a couple of uh, points I wanted to uh, uh, wrap up mm-hmm. with here. Uh, first, I mentioned Lanny Davis, and uh, I did find the quote he gave to Howie Kurtz at the time <laughs> yeah. uh, about the story. Uh, quote, is journalism about reporting facts or not? Where have we gone when an unsubstantiated allegation becomes a fact if others report it? It, it is not corroborated because her girlfriend, girlfriend saw her with a swollen lip. That doesn't make the charge of rape a fact. Um, so now, hasn't doing that everything. changed today? Uh, I would think so. Uh, well, and I mean, also, you, you know, we, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
I, I was just going to say before, you know, we were talking about how uh, Star's people never had evidence that Clinton at the time in 98, 99 was pressuring her to stay silent. But according Correct. to Broderick's story, uh, Clinton did uh, seem to make some pretty uh, damning admissions. She talks about this is and again, now I'm reading from your piece. Um, right, right. Uh, she recalled seeing him in 1991 when she was summoned to another nursing home meeting in Little Rock and uh, they encounter each other and uh, she says clinton it was unreal clinton kept trying to hold my hand i can still remember his words he clinton said can you ever forgive me i'm not the same man i used to be and i told him you just go to hell and i walked away i was shaking um a uh, uh, a pretty powerful uh, encounter right there um so let me just ask you, uh, Lois, you know, as you look at the reporting on the Kavanaugh allegations uh, mm -hmm. in the context of the kind of reporting you did, um, do you think our standards have gone down in any way? Do you think that uh, we're more trusting of these women? What, how do you assess the allegations against Kavanaugh in light of your own the, the very high standards you used in reporting on Winita Broderick? That's a very good and hard question. I don't think standards have gone down, but I think the culture has evolved. Um, studies of women who have been assaulted have been, um, have evolved. For example, we know now through a lot of work that it's very rare for a woman to make a false accusation. So I think that fits into people's reporting and thinking. I mean, when's the last time you heard of a woman accusing a prominent politician of something like this that didn't end up having a shred of truth in it, or at least she believed it? So I don't think I don't think our standards have changed. I think the culture and the times have changed. I think we're more apt to believe the woman and what the standard seems to be, which was the same standard I had, which is who did the person tell contemporaneously or who did they tell at all? Um, and, you know, in the case of uh, most of these Me Too stories, there was contemporaneous reporting. Uh, Dr. Ford wasn't contemporaneous, but it was five years ago. Um, so I think that seems to be the standard. I'm still a little bit of, I have a mixed feeling on um, Ms. Ramirez. I'm just not sure where that's going right now. But it's a fascinating yeah. point about about the culture evolving and uh, how we look at these accusations um, differently, and that that factors into um, how we assess the evidence and 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 whether to make the decision to to publish or not. And um, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, we still have to be incredibly rigorous, uh, and as you say, um, you know, do all the cross checking and and. Um, and um, and and looking for contemporary accounts, um, um, but uh, um, but attitudes change, and I think that is also reflected in journalism sometimes, as it should be. Exactly. Well, we will uh, be watching all this play out on Thursday, assuming the hearing comes off as uh, as advertised, and uh, we'll all get a chance to assess, uh, make our own assessments of the. Uh, credibility of the two witnesses uh, scheduled to testify, Christina Ford and... No, uh, I, I have a question for you guys. Um, sure. I have a question for you guys. I, I, I'm just reading that that uh, the 
the majority in the Judiciary Committee has hired a lawyer uh, to uh, question Dr. Ford uh, on behalf of both the Democrats and the Republicans. Does that mean that members are not going to question her at all? Well, that's a great question, uh, Lois. Um, and uh, because I was thinking about this uh, the other day when I when I heard that this was something that they might do, I can't imagine uh, that uh, these senators uh, would kind of just sit on their hands and not ask questions themselves. I think it would look uh, terrible for them uh, to, to, to do that, right. you know, particularly on the Republican side which is, as it was during the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings, uh, you know, entirely male. In fact, the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, there has there has not been a Republican uh, member of the Senate Judiciary Committee in 202 years. Uh, and um, it will look so transparent uh, if they hire a female uh, lawyer to ask the questions and, and do not uh, have... Uh, you know, the spine um, to ask questions uh, themselves. So I have to think that they will also um, ask questions, but maybe they'll just leave the hard ones up to uh, whichever lawyer they hire. I don't know. Isikoff, what do you think? Uh, uh, well, uh, I'm absolutely certain the Democrats uh, are going to take advantage of the, the opportunity to ask questions. I think that I've heard some talk that they're going to let Kamala Harris play the lead um, former prosecutor, a really tough, uh, grueling mm-hmm. uh, 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 interrogator. Um, but I, I think you'll see uh, the others weighing in. I've heard Sheldon Whitehouse saying, of course, he's going to ask questions. Uh, and I imagine... But they can't uh, stop them from asking questions, right? Right, right. They're certainly going to ask questions. The interesting thing will be to see how the Republicans um, uh, do it. But uh, by the way, that does remind me of one other thing I I noticed in reading over the clips, Juanita Broderick, Mm -hmm. uh, one reason she talked to you and Lisa Myers and not some others is she wanted to tell her story to a woman, not a man. Yes, that's absolutely true. And that's why she talked to Dorothy Rabinowitz, too. She did not want to talk to a man. Um, um, But, you know, again, I will tell you that once these women, once it comes out of their mouth and they tell the story... They are very empowered. Um, you know, a, a big weight gets lifted off of them, and um, and they continue to tell their story, and they continue to analyze it, and they're able to analyze it in a public way. Um, it's with them for a long time. Well, um, Lois, uh, thanks uh, for joining us on this uh, episode of uh, Buried Treasure. Uh, I'll be very interested to hear your assessment of the hearings Uh of the hearing on Thursday, and um, uh, we may want to have you back to talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks for having All me. Right. Thanks a lot, Lois. Take care. All okay. right. Bye-bye. Thanks to Lois Romano for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you on Friday. Mm-hmm.